You're listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Gray. Join me as we cover topics about nutrition, health, and lifestyle so you can have ancestral health in a modern world. This episode is brought to you by Ancestral Elements Supplements. If you're looking for whole food, high-quality, wild-crafted supplements, look at Ancestral Elements Supplements. I offer a liver and colostrum supplement as well as a wild bear clover tincture. With my background in food science, I'm able to personally formulate and create my own supplement line to ensure the integrity and quality of each product. In both supplements that I offer, none contain any fillers. They're strictly 100% food items, making them completely bioavailable and non-disruptive to the gut microbiome. For further information, go to AncestralElements.com and navigate to the supplements page. Now, here's the episode. Hi, and welcome back to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. This is episode 58, Eating on the Wild Side, the Plant Kingdom. This week, we are going to navigate kind of the murky, treacherous waters of the plant kingdom. When it comes to human nutrition, there are primarily two stories that people like to tell about plants. One is that plants are these nutrient powerhouses that can kind of do everything and should be elevated above every other kingdom. And the other is that plants are this kind of toxic load that should be mostly avoided. Now, these are the two extreme opinions. And I want to show you guys a third way to think about this, because I really think both of these opinions aren't necessarily the most accurate. And don't get me wrong, there is truth in both of these opinions. Plants can provide an extreme nutritional benefit, and they can be toxic. But like with anything in a complex system of ecology and biology, it's way more complicated than just looking at things from the polar extremes. Okay, so let's dive in here a little bit. The plant kingdom has been domesticated for a very, very long time. That was really the first kingdom of life that we started to domesticate. There's a concept going back into our ancestry called tending the wild. And this idea was essentially part-time gardening, where small communities and tribes would encourage certain plants to grow in their area. So they would have stable food crops coming in. And then when they would leave an area, they would allow that ground to kind of lay fallow, and they would come back in the next season and encourage more growth. With domestication really starting to come on board about 10 to 12,000 years ago, this concept then was expanded on and crossing of species in the plant kingdom started to become normalized practice. People started to identify certain traits that they could selectively breed for production, size, taste, quantity, whatever value that they wanted to get out of that particular cross. And as we've done this over the past 10 or 12,000 years, a lot of the plants that we eat have drastically been changed from the wild phenotype that they started. If you look at something like a plantain versus a banana, a plantain is much more like a wild banana. It's starchy, it doesn't have as much sugar, but due to just genetic variation, somebody at some point of growing plantains and bananas found kind of a freak mutant banana that had a higher sugar content, less seeds, 
And then they selectively bred that till they consistently were growing the bananas that we consume today on a regular basis. Not to say that there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but what you do get is you get a variation in nutrition. And if we look at the landscape of today in the plant kingdom of today, there are over 200,000 edible plant species, and we're lucky if we consume 20 per year. So that's a drastically skewed landscape, and a landscape that is impacted heavily by man-made change. And obviously we've done this in other kingdoms as well, but the plant kingdom stands out as particularly robust in the changes that we've created as a human species. And typically, when we're talking about plants in regards to human nutrition, we're talking about those 20 species that we eat from, that we can buy at the grocery store, at the supermarket. That's not a very diverse selection. And most people are eating about 12 of those 20 species, because a lot of them come from the nightshade family, the brassica family, and then things like stone fruits and maybe nuts sometimes. And we eat from this narrow kind of species selection because it's what farmers grow. It's what has been bred for production and storage and shipping. All those other species of plants are still out there on the landscape and anybody can get them. You know, often in the nutrition circles, there's this kind of demonization of plants and fruits in particular that, you know, with these domesticated fruits, they're just all, you know, high in carbohydrates and they're not like they used to be. But the truth is, neither is a cow, right? We're not going back to a wild phenotype of a cow, of the aurochs, and we're not going back to the wild banana. So for you as a 21st century human, you have to navigate that landscape of domestication, not only from the food you eat, but within yourself. But really, the truth is, there's plenty of wild things to still eat. There's wild game, there's wild plants, there's wild fruits. You know, so we can kind of whine and complain about it all we want, but it's not going to change the domestication process. We can't bring things back to the way they were. And people have tried. People have tried to do reverse genetics and reverse domestication, and it doesn't work. And so that leaves you with one option. It leaves you to navigate and to choose what works well for you in the current landscape of things. You know, it's not like 7,000 years ago, people that were domesticating food had the forethought to do a nutritional analysis and see, you know, what they were changing nutritionally about the plants they were selectively breeding. There was no DNA spectral analysis or any type of genetic testing. So blaming people really isn't that helpful. It's helpful to get education around this so you can make the best informed decision that you can personally make. You know, especially kind of in the keto and carnivore world, there is a really big push against fruit and plants. Again, mostly fruit kind of demonization is due to the carbohydrate load in there, the sugar, and occasionally like things like pectins that are in fruits especially, so that kind of thickening agent that can be mildly disruptive to the gut microbiome. And with things like the brassica family, there's oxalic acid, or what's known as oxalates. 
and that can be a little bit hard on the kidneys. And both of those things are true. There are things in plants that can potentially be harmful or toxic to your body. But it's a pretty simplistic view to just say you shouldn't be eating those things because they carry a toxic load and can be toxic to your body. That's like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And you're loading an ideological gun and firing it at plants kind of unfairly. Where really it's about preparation and cooking method more so than it is about the toxic load. Because with things like oxalic acid, that stuff can be cooked out and rendered inert in a biological system. Now, if you were eating something like spinach salads, raw spinach salads, every single day for years and years, yeah, you could potentially end up with some renal damage. Albeit pretty rare, it could happen. But knowing that cooking your spinach or soaking your rice, for example, to get rid of the phytic acid, that's just good handling practices with that food. You know, and since a lot of people don't cook anymore and don't take the time to a lot of times prepare foods and to get the most nutrition out of them, people just find it easier to kind of demonize that whole kingdom of foods and say, you know what, they're toxic. People aren't going to take the time to do it right. It's too much work. Let's just not eat them because they're not good for the body. And that's a really extreme opinion. And then you have the other side of the coin where people think plants are everything and they provide all the nutrition you could possibly ever need. And that's not true either. There's no kingdom that is above another kingdom. They're all different. They all should come together to provide you biological balance. Domesticated plants in particular, anymore really, it's about subdued flavor and size. Most of the time, what people selectively bred out of the plants over generations and generations were bitter compounds and kind of a, a tannic compound. What that does is when you selectively breed to grow things bigger and to have kind of su subdued flavors, in other words, kind of less bitter and or astringent flavors in those foods, it creates a dilution effect because water has to then fill those gaps, essentially, that you've selectively bred for. And you get a loss in nutrients, and you also get less in defense chemicals that are in the plants. Sometimes those defense chemicals are a little bit burdensome on the body. So really, with kind of an ultra-domesticated plant, you know, think of something like iceberg lettuce. You get low nutrient quality and less defense chemicals, which really opens the whole genome up for predation, for pests to come in, because the plants have lost their natural immunity. Their, their natural defenses are gone, and they're left susceptible. And then you're eating those susceptible genetics. See, if you look at plants on a genetic level, it starts to clear the murky waters a little bit. And then, obviously, that if you kick the can down the road a little bit further, that's going to lead to things like pesticide usage and fungicides and herbicides and the whole thing starts to kind of unravel at that point. Whereas wild plants are kept high in nutrients and high in their defense chemicals, which a lot of times can produce a medicinal effect in your body. There's been a lot of kind of inflammatory hype around kale, both positive and negative. You know, in 
the 2000s, kale became this superfood. Everybody was doing kale smoothies. Everybody was eating kale, you know, and kale's fine as a brassica. I mean, it's nothing special, you know, and now kale has been demonized for its oxalate load and kind of not that great nutritional value. And honestly, both are kind of true. Kale's really not that special. It's just a brassica, you know, broccoli's essentially the same, cabbage's the same, kohlrabi's the same, collard greens, you know, you could eat any of those and basically get the same nutritional profile as kale. You know, the pushback against kale is intentionally inflammatory to get people talking about it. It's not really about the kale. You know, if you want to talk high oxalate load, look at something like amaranth. So amaranth comes from, amaranth is a native plant species to North America. There's a green species and then there's a leafy species that people use. And that's what spinach was selected out of. So spinach is a domesticated version of amaranth. Amaranth has an extremely high oxalate load, meaning it can crystallize in the kidneys if it's not prepared well. But native peoples in the North America region knew how to prepare amaranth. They would soak the seed, they would boil the seeds for a long time to make hot cereals. And it's still used like that. People are still eating amaranth. It's high in protein, it's loaded with nutrients, but you need to get rid of that oxalate load in order to make it edible. You know, wild genetics aren't necessarily meant to be consumed every single day of each season. That's the thing with wild medicinal plants, is they have medicinal value to them, so you don't want to overload your body with them constantly. It would be like overloading your body on aspirin or some other type of medicinal value that you're taking in. Not a good idea, but the high nutrient value means that you don't have to eat as much. So higher nutrients and lower quantity means you're not getting as much of a toxic load on your body to deal with. And if you keep variety in there, then you're not overloading your body with one particular toxic load, like oxalates, for example. And that's where we've gone wrong in our modern life that we're living, is that we're just constantly eating a very narrow species of plants, and we're constantly getting the same defense chemicals that are made in the plant into our bodies, and it's disruptive. Something like wild lettuce, or what's sometimes called opium lettuce, has this milky white substance when you pick it called lacticurium. And if that's dried, if that milky substance is dried, it produces a effect kind of similar to opium. It was historically used and ancestrally used to treat pain. So it kind of subdues the central nervous system and has this kind of, um, has this effect of triggering the opioid receptors in your body. Now it's not nearly as potent as the opium poppy, but it definitely was historically used even up till the 1800s to treat pain. We don't think of lettuce as a high medicinal value food. I mean, people eat Caesar salad and, you know, a spring mix without blinking an eye. You know, it's easy to forget the nutrition in food because we've taken a lot of the nutrition out of food. You know, so when people are saying, let food be thy medicine, it's hard to even picture at this point because a lot of times there is no medicine left in the food that we're eating and it can't be viewed as medicine anymore, which is a crazy thing to even say. You know, if you're comparing, you know, <laughs> an opium lettuce versus iceberg lettuce, opium lettuce demands a degree of respect. 
And that's the difference between a lot of wild foods and domesticated foods, is that wild foods demand a degree of respect that domesticated foods no longer demand, because they're so subdued down. Their flavor profiles, their nutrient profiles, and just how they eat, that they're essentially mindless. You can shovel them in your body, and you have no noticeable effect. Now, I'm not saying you'll want to just go binge on wild lettuce, but a food like that requires preparation. It requires some forethought before you put it into your body. And as a concept, especially a nutritional concept, that's largely been lost, which really is, I think, why a large portion of the population doesn't take food and nutrition seriously. It's because it's been so subdued down and now heavily processed and industrialized, it doesn't require any forethought, any respect at all. You know, the thing is, with something like wild lettuce, it is extremely bitter. You know, that's, if you look at all the lettuces, it's pretty rare that you get a really bitter variety. There are more bitter ones out there, but if you compare wild lettuce to even the most bitter domesticated variety, it doesn't really even come close. You know, it's on par with dandelion greens, which are quite bitter, but wild lettuce is even more bitter than dandelion greens because it has that milky, sappy residue. It's highly medicinal. And we've done this with a lot of plant species. We've bred out the bitter quality to them. You know, think about something like hops. Hops is a great example of a plant that is now domesticated, but has maintained its medicinal value. Think about how bitter hops is. When you drink a really hoppy IPA beer, it's bitter. I mean, you smell hops and you can smell the resiny kind of bitterness in there. It's very distinctive. And it turns out hops is highly medicinal, highly medicinal. And I don't know if a lot of people realize this, but hops, so the Latin name is Humalus lupulus. It has this flavonoid in it, which is a chemical compound that is in plants that provide a lot of antioxidants and anti-inflammatories properties. But it, the flavonoid is called 6PN or 8PN, and the PN just stands for the flavonoid compound perennial naringenin. So naringenin is a flavonoid that's also found in um, citrus peels. So if you've ever had an orange peel, like a fresh orange peel, and you get that real bitter hit, you kind of know what I'm talking about, or grapefruit or whatever it is. That's the flavonoid naringenin. And hops <coughs> has naringenin in it. It turns out it has a profound effect to regulate lymphocytic cells, so T-cells, B-cells, NK-cells, things that help support immunity. It's been shown in some clinical studies to have anti-cancer effects and anti-tumor effects. It's a potent medicinal plant, but you wouldn't want to just drink gallons and gallons of hops. It would be too much for your body. Your body would tell you, we've had enough. Just like you wouldn't eat a salad of wild lettuce or rosemary or oregano or any other plant with high medicinal and nutrient value. Bitter compounds need to be consumed and a lot of them have a lot of them have effects so it regulates what's called deacetylases so or HDACs. So we, I've talked about histone quite a lot on this podcast and kind of the acetylation of the histone protein getting regulated at 
the epigenetic level on the DNA itself, how it winds up and tightens to either, quote-unquote, turn off or turn on certain genes. And this is a food that has a direct involvement in that acetylation process of regulating that histone protein that sits on your actual DNA. And so when we're talking about it regulating a cellular response, we have a direct mechanism to actually measure that, which is hard to find in a lot of wild plants because they're not that well studied, unfortunately. But it turns out a lot of these bitter compounds, that's what they do. They really do regulate things on an epigenetic level and from a microbiome standpoint. And so if you're not ever getting bitter foods in your diet, you should be getting some bitter foods in your diet. You know, and bitter is a flavor profile that we are just not really accustomed to anymore in our kind of domesticated foods. You find it a lot in foods that have maintained their medicinal value through the domestication process. You know, bitter melon is another good example. But really, if you are wanting to regulate some type of cellular response, some type of, whether it's inflammation pathway or antioxidant clearing pathway and redox pathway, seek out bitter foods because they are profound at regulating and detoxing those types of pathways. And I've posted papers in the show notes if you guys want to take a look at kind of what I'm talking about and the mechanistic drivers that are at play with some of these bitter compounds. But they really are a very important flavor to keep in your diet, especially if you're dealing with some type of chronic issue. You know, to me, I would much rather center my diet around high medicinal foods that can regulate down to a genetic DNA level than have to rely on synthetic medications to keep me going. That's my personal choice, and obviously not everybody feels that way, but I would much rather do that than the alternative. You know, so when you hear things like, you know, plants are toxic and shouldn't be eaten, but yet you have the majority of the population on prescription drugs, there's some mixed messaging going on there. I'm not saying that plants could get you off of prescription drugs necessarily, but they certainly can help you regulate some cellular pathways in your body if approached properly and with good education around them, you know, but it's not going to happen with the domesticated foods that we have and domesticated plants that we have in particular. You know, you have to seek out actual medicinal value in your plants because it's been taken out, quite frankly. You know, you're not going to get it with some endive or radish or whatever it is. It's just not going to happen. Not like you should anyway. You know, look to things like culinary herbs and things like hops, you know, things with astringency, bitterness, you know, and that's the thing with wild plants. You have to kind of take them on a case-by-case basis. They're all going to demand a certain type of preparation and respect that goes with that. You know, when I'm processing acorns, for example, that demands preparation in a degree of respect. You know, otherwise that tannic acid, those tannins that are in the acorn that give oak that distinctive flavor will bind to a lot of my nutrients in my body and strip them right out and be very damaging to me. It requires a level of processing that most people don't want to deal with. And I think that's why you get that messaging that plants are toxic and like shouldn't be eaten. It's just because people know that a lot of people won't want to take the time to process and make them edible and nutritious. But you certainly can, and you should. Again, don't just throw them away because there's 
some potentially negative compounds in there. Most plants, with a level of cooking or soaking or fermenting, can provide you with great nutritional value. Yes, it may take work and it may take some forethought and respect, but it can be done and should be done, in my opinion. You know, there's things like the salvias, right? So sage, you know, that has psychoactive properties. And again, a degree of very high medicinal value. Sage is a pretty bitter plant, especially if you're eating a non-domesticated version, some type of older variety like I have around here. It's called Cleveland sage. It is extremely potent. It doesn't carry of any of the psychedelic properties, but it carries good medicinal value. So when you're thinking about plants, if you garden, think about older heirloom varieties or older versions of the common stuff that you're buying. Because really, usually it's actually easier to grow because they're adapted to harsher environments. And you won't have to baby them and pamper them as much because they have robust genetics. And you get the bonus of a high medicinal value plant that you can consume from. So really, when it comes to plants and the whole plant kingdom, think about incorporating some wild phenotypes back into your diet. Think about getting some wild variety, whether it's dandelion or roasting dandelion roots for a coffee substitute, or getting some wild lettuce, or some wild plums, or whatever it may be, whatever is growing in your bioregion. See what you have access to, and try it out. You know, And definitely don't be afraid of some bitter compounds. Don't be afraid of bitter flavors. They are important in your body, and to your nutrition, and overall health. You know, in no way do I think that plants are necessarily going to save the world? Again, there's no hierarchy in these kingdoms that I talk about. They're all useful, they all serve a purpose, and they all go together. This is ecology we're talking about, not some weird hierarchy of kingdoms and species and nutritional value. This is an integrated, incorporated system. You should be eating from every kingdom of life. Animal, plant, fungi, bacterial, protist. You know, one is not better than the other. They all are doing their own thing and providing their own value. And it's easy to get bogged down with kind of our idea of the plant kingdom. Because again, there's 200,000 different types of edible plants out there in the world at this very moment. And we eat about 20 of them. <laughs> so I'm going to leave you with that for this week. Again, thank you so much for listening. And I will talk to you guys very soon. As always, get outside. Eat a five kingdom, species varied diet, and I'll talk to you later. Thank you for listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, leave me a rating and review. This will ensure that people can find the podcast so that we can grow the audience, and it will help me secure guests for future episodes. If you have suggestions on what you want to hear on upcoming episodes, go to AncestralElements.com and leave me a comment. I would love to hear your guys' thoughts and inputs and answer any questions that you may have.